afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Gabor Matei, who will tell us about the stress-disease connection. Also, we'll find out who popularized the decimal point. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Very good, very good. Almost Merry Christmas. It's almost a Merry Christmas to you as well. I've been in the holiday spirit since November, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't the songs been coming on earlier and earlier it's, every year it's now? It's amazing. It's, that's fine, because I, I prefer Christmas to be all year round. So what do you expect in your stockings? Lump of coal. <laughs> Is that what you got last year? It's what I get every year. I think it has something to do with that brick that I bought that I thought was a laptop computer. You're coming off of something. Bad karma. I don't know yeah. why. What are you going to get for Christmas? I was thinking of making my uh, DNA fluoresce. Yeah, well, if it's red and green, then <laughs> it's, red and green, of course. it would work pretty well. But uh, it turns out some scientists have actually done that. They've made your DNA fluoresce? They can. There's an alternate version of DNA in which they take one of the base pairs and slightly make it larger so that uh, overall the DNA is about 10% wider and as a result, it seems to fluoresce under a violet light. Well, but so this DNA can't obviously code anymore because it's different. It, it can't code. Uh, in fact, these uh, researchers do not believe that it could create life here on Earth, although uh, one, uh, it could be used as a diagnostic for, say, detecting mutations in the, in the DNA. Oh, interesting. So you, you just slip this base in every time there's some mutation or something? And right, and then like wherever it glows in your DNA sequence, you know where the mutation occurred. Oh, ah, nice. Right, <laughs> Good and marker. this is you know pretty interesting stuff, work carried out by a uh, Professor Eric Cool, be cool name, huh? I would expect anything less for such cool scientific work. Right, from uh, Stanford University. Well, the other thing that this work seems to suggest is if we're looking for life on other planets, that we would be also looking for uh, stuff similar to DNA, but not exactly DNA. Mm. Yeah, well, there's no reason to even presume that it's carbon-based at all. Right, because you're silicon, right? Or boron or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping for the, uh, what, Californium-based Californium, life. Californium, yeah. Based life form. Going nuclear, dude. That's right. Uh, and it would conjugate with, what, seaborgium? <laughs> and berkelium. And berkelium. Wasn't it? Wasn't Glenn Seaborg the uh, only guy who could spell his address using all chemical elements? Oh, really? Seaborgium, Laurentium, Berkelium, Californium. Whoa. Yeah, because Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Ah. He was also the person that uh, they named an element while he was still alive. That's true. But this is pretty interesting stuff. It's also called uh, XDNA. XDNA. Yeah. It's for... It's, it's for the it's, Generation X people, huh? That's right. And uh, it was actually published in the October 31st issue of Science. Okay, well, this has absolutely nothing to do with fluorescent DNA. So how do you try and fall asleep? Well, I just overwork myself till I'm dead. <laughs> That's one way of going about it. Do you ever try and count sheep? Yeah. Meh. Those animals? Yes. Uh, no. How about werewolves? Or? <laughs> uh, the funny thing is, though, sheep, you look at them, they all have different faces. They may all look like to you and me. They do have different faces. Right. Researchers have wondered whether or not sheep can recognize other sheep based on their characteristic faces. Mm-hmm. But I thought almost all animals have different faces from each other, and they 
do have some sort of recognition that we may not be aware of. Right. It's at least been shown behaviorally that perhaps these animals can recognize each other. Right, like, say, monkeys or something. Yeah. See, sheep are a little, you would think, less evolved. Right. Perhaps they might not have it. And, in fact, it turns out that sheep actually have a better recognition ability than monkeys or humans for recognizing faces. So this was work that was carried out by My C. Mann and Nancy Canwisher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It turns out that sheep have certain neurons that are responsive to faces, much like humans do, Mm -hmm. what are called face-selective neurons. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that these neurons are highly selective to different types of faces. And not only that, but if they only see a face from the front angle, and then you present that face from a side angle, they will recognize it as well, showing that these sheep can actually mentally rotate a sheep image that they've seen before to recognize it from the side. Wow. But you know, you seem different from the side than from the face on. That's true. So it's the question like, how do they do this mental rotation in their head? Hmm. It seems like something that it's sort of a higher cognitive ability. Maybe secretly they're manipulating the course of our history or something. <laughs> we just, you know, are not aware of it. I, I've always thought that the sheep were in control of population. Hmm. It's the only way I can explain. Uh, Even the dolphins. The dolphins certainly, uh, with their radar technology, yeah. bringing their messages into our head. <laughs> I think it explains why uh, Schwarzenegger was elected. But anyway, so if anyone's interested in uh, finding out more about this, this was a work seen in a recent edition of Science Now. Well, I guess it is Christmas time, so uh, my second story will be uh, a bit more optimistic, I guess. Okay. So it turns out the rate at which the ozone is being destroyed is slowing down. Oh, is that right? So, you know, previously we've been getting a lot of indications that, you know, the ozone was going to disintegrate it to... Uh, practically nothing. Practically nothing. Giving us big sunburns. Right. So uh, we have reason to be optimistic now that a recent finding suggests that the rate at which this ozone is disappearing is significantly slowing down in oh. the upper atmosphere. So we're talking about 35 to uh, 45 kilometers in the atmosphere. It also indicates a trend that the chlorofluorocarbons that are destroying the atmosphere could be uh, lessening in terms of their uh, concentration. So it looks like whatever environmental actions that have been taking place have actually reduced the amount of uh, right. these gases in the atmosphere. Right. So the, uh, the main uh, protocol is the uh, Montreal Protocol, which was actually passed in the 80s. So mm-hmm. uh, it's taken a while, but it seems to be that this policy is slowly uh, having some positive effects. Oh, excellent. So we may not be uh, reduced to uh, global... Pancake, french fries. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever it is. Toast. Yeah. Toast. Uh, certainly good news. And now Santa Claus can fly through the uh, atmosphere worry-free of skin disease. No more of that uh, suntan, right? <laughs> yeah, probably had Rudolph reflecting all the UV rays. But uh, this is good stuff. You can check it out in the recent issue of the Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres, and uh, work carried out by New Church at the University of Alabama. Okay, and uh, one final note for the holiday season is that scientists seem to have a good clue onto what is uh, conferring HIV resistance in some 10% of the European population. Well, you mean the superhumans? The super... <laughs> As it turns out, uh, 10% of Europeans actually can carry a mutation that gives them resistance to HIV. Wow, you mean full resistance or they just... Full, full resistance. In fact, they lack a certain protein called the CCR5 chemokine receptor, uh-huh. which is what the HIV binds to and affects immune cells. Wow. It was a big question why uh, there's some population that has this, where's the selective advantage? And it had been thought that it arose during the 14th century when bubonic plague was present. Mm-hmm. And it was thought, oh, well, maybe you have similar resistance to bubonic plague right. if you have this deletion. But new research has found out it's perhaps more likely that smallpox was the cause of this mutation. So and, there was some good after all. <laughs> you know, as much good as smallpox can do. So do these people also have some other uh, deficiency as a result of not having this particular protein? That's not clear. I guess they probably have 
have some compensation for it. I guess the CCR5 receptor does some other action in the gene. Right. But the interesting thing about it is that smallpox, which existed for a long amount of time, mm -hmm. actually corresponds much more broadly to uh, mathematical models of how mutations like this should arise. Because oh, if you I have see. a disease that goes over a long period of time, then you'd have a better selection for these type of genes. Right. So it's partial evolution then. Right. And it's interesting because this work that was carried out by Allison Galvani and Montgomery Slatkin here at the University of California, Berkeley, have shown that, in fact, these mutations are very consistent with smallpox infection. And smallpox also infects the same kind of cells that HIV does, so it's, huh. it's a better model than right. bubonic plague. Wow, that's some good news then. It's good news for the holidays. Uh -huh. <laughs> so if anyone's interested in learning more about this, they can take a look. It's published in a recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Dr. Gabor Matei will join us to discuss the stress-disease connection. So stay tuned. Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, what is it about the connection between our state of mind and our bodily well-being? Can stress and emotional makeup play a role in disease processes? And how does our immune system react to these changes in mental state? Well, these are some of the questions that medical research is just beginning to address. And we are fortunate enough today to have joining us Dr. Gabor Matei. Dr. Matei is the author of the new book, When the Body Says No, Understanding the Stress-Disease Connection. He has been a family practitioner for 20 years, and his first book, Scattered, was a national bestseller in Canada. He joins us today to discuss this stress-disease connection. Uh, Dr. Matei, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. My pleasure. Uh, well, you've written, certainly written a very fascinating book, uh, When the Body Says No, uh, about the connection between stress and debilitating disease. I'm curious if you can explain to us a little bit about this connection between the state of our mind and the state of our body. Yes. Western medicine assumes that mind and body are actually separate. Even though we pay lip service to the mind-body unity, we don't practice it in any meaningful sense of the word. What's actually the case is that we now have the science 
to understand and to know why mind and body can't even said to be connected. They can't said to be connected, let alone separated, because they're one and the same thing. They're one unit. Uh, so that even to use the word connection is to create the impression that two separate things are somehow joined together. It's much more sophisticated than that. Essentially, what we know now is that the emotional centers in the brain, our brain, which are a big part of our cerebral apparatus, are physiologically joined with the hormonal system, the immune system, and the nervous system. And the pathways of those connections have been worked out so that whatever happens emotionally immediately has a physiological impact. And whatever happens emotionally on a chronic basis will have a chronic physiological impact. Now, what I've noticed in 20 years of family practice and also seven years as a palliative care specialist is that people who develop serious illness or chronic conditions of almost any kind, whether cancer or ALS or multiple sclerosis or autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, colitis, or chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, or chronic conditions such as migraine, asthma, there's certain things emotionally that they share. And the primary emotional trait is the difficulty saying no to the demands of the world, particularly to the emotional demands of other people, hence the title of my book, When the Body Says No, because when people don't know how to say no, the body will end up saying it in the form of illness. And characteristic of all these people are the difficulty saying no, a difficulty experiencing and expressing anger in a healthy way, and also a very rigid and dutiful identification with the role. In other words, they're very much having to play a self-appointed role in the world as caretakers, as conscientious, as dutiful. And those emotional characteristics don't by themselves cause disease, but what they do is that they lead to a lot of stress. And because of the emotional parts of the brain being connected with the other parts that I mentioned, the immune system, the hormonal, and the nervous system, whatever we do emotionally in the long term will affect us physically as well. And suppressing our boundaries and our sense of self emotionally will lead to a suppression of our immune system and our physiological selves. So you, you do talk a lot about uh, the different personalities in your book. Uh, you even asked the question one of the chapters, is there a cancer personality? Right. Uh, I'm curious maybe go into more detail about typical personalities you see in maybe some of these major diseases. The common characteristic of people with major diseases, again, are the difficulty saying no, or the difficulty asserting themselves on their own behalf. They may be very asserting of that you know, on the behalf or in the defense of other people, but not on their own behalf. They're automatic caregivers. Gilda Radner, who died of ovarian cancer, the comedian, found and wrote in her biography towards the very end of her life that she found out too late, really, that she couldn't take care of everybody else, that she couldn't be a model to everybody else, that she had to take care of herself first. And anger is an important one. The healthy expression of anger, it's been shown in many studies that people who don't know how to get angry are much more likely to get sick. And if they do get sick, they're much more likely to die of their disease rather than survive it. Women who are able to get angry at their doctors, for example, uh, after they've been diagnosed with breast cancer, have better activity of their natural killer cells, which is an immune cell in the body, and they have a better chance of survival than women who are incapable of expressing and experiencing anger in a healthy way. So that these are the characteristics. And I don't think there's a cancer personality per se, but you know, there is no personality causes disease, but the personality who doesn't know how to assert themselves and how to express anger in a healthy way is much more likely to be intruded upon, to be taken advantage of, and therefore to be physiologically stressed. And it's that stress that translates into physical illness. And so statistically, somebody who doesn't know how to express anger has got a much higher risk of a serious illness. I was amused by one of your stories in the book about why are uh, patients with ALS so nice? Well, uh, in North America, ALS is called uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And Lou Gehrig, of course, was the great
great teammate of um, Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees. And Gary said it was not only a masterful and talented baseball player, he also set a, cons- a record for consecutive games played that stood for nearly 60 years. And not because he never got injured or never got sick, but simply because he ignored it when he did. And so it turned out at some point his hands were x-rayed. They had been fractured 17 separate times. Mm. And each time, Gehrig would play, grimacing like a maddened monkey in pain, according to his teammates, but he would be too dutiful to the owners and to his fans ever to, quote-unquote, let them down by missing a game. Now, he was also one of these really supremely nice guys, and I ran across a paper written by a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic presented at the International ALS Congress a few years ago in which they said that the technicians in our office, when patients come in for diagnosis, will predict who will and who will not have ALS, which is based on how nice they are. And the technicians will say, this person, I'm afraid, has ALS, she's too nice. Or this person cannot have ALS, they're not nice enough. And the neurologists find that our technicians are never wrong, even though the observations are obviously totally unscientific. And it's just, when I looked at the literature, it's just a matter of fact that people with ALS do t- tend to have this rigid identification with duty. And most of the time, this great need to be pleasing of others and to be very, very nice. Now, that's almost always true. Not always. Charles Mingus, the great, great jazz bass player, was an exception in that he was wasn't a very nice guy, but in every other way, this rigid identification with the role and the early childhood loss that forced him to give up his true self really was characteristic of his life as well. So what is it that we know right now about how uh, the stress in our lives then creates conditions in our body that can lead to these kind of diseases? Uh, stress is not a, a abstract psychological concept. It's, it's a set of physical events in the body. And what happens in the stress response is that the brain's emotional centers send messages to a master gland in the brain called hypothalamus. The hypothalamus then sends chemicals to another gland in the brain at the very bottom of the the head, actually embedded in the bones at the base of the skull called the pituitary. And the pituitary then sends further messages to all the other glands in the body, and specifically to the adrenal gland, which is on top of the kidneys. The adrenal gland produces adrenaline, named after itself, the adrenal, adrenaline. And the cortex, or the outer rim of the adrenal gland, puts out a chemical named after the cortex called cortisol. And so the major stress hormones in the body are cortisol and adrenaline, and particularly cortisol has multiple effects, some of them necessary in the short term, but all of them damaging in the long term. And and cortisone suppresses the immune system, it ulcerates the intestines, it thins the bones, and uh, it puts on fat in the wrong places, it depresses the brain, and does a whole lot of other things in chronic doses. And people who are chronically stressed have chronically high levels of cortisol, and in almost every illness you carry the name, from cancer to rheumatoid disease to multiple sclerosis, at some point, asthma, at some point or another, cortisol has to be used because the body's own stress mechanism has been exhausted, and we need higher than normal levels of cortisol to keep our body's immune system in check, otherwise it attacks the body itself. So what you get in a lot of diseases is the immune system escaping from the normal cortisol response and therefore attacking the body, which is almost, of course, the same thing that happens to anger. Anger that we don't express externally will turn against self in the form of self-put-downs, self-harming behaviors, and a constant negative self-talk. In the same way, the immune system will turn against self and create antibodies against the tissues of the body. Cortisol suppresses the immune system. The role of cortisol um, is to suppress inflammation because part of the stress response is that the cells that produce inflammation in our bodies go to work in order to protect us from, from external invasion. But that has to be kept under control. So cortisol does that. But chronic cortisol, chronically high cortisol mm-hmm. levels, have deleterious effects, including on the immune system. And so that you find that people who are stressed are more likely to get colds, for example. That's a common study mm-hmm. that's been done a number of times. Medical students, under the stress of examinations, will have 
diminished activity of their immune systems. Dental hmm. students, under the stress of examinations, when you put a wound into their palate, in their mouth, hmm. it'll take longer to heal when they're being stressed. Hmm. Again, because of the physiological effects of stress. Right. So what do you recommend then for uh, people then to lead maybe healthier lives? Do you recommend that they try and reduce the stress in their lives? Or well, not? I wrote the book for two reasons. One is, it wasn't simply to present all the science. And, you know, there's a lot of personal stories in the book, including some famous individuals and some patients I interviewed. But it wasn't just to present a case. It was also because I wanted to present possibilities for people to stay healthy and to heal. And so the Canadian subtitle of the book is, is The Cost of Hidden Stress. The U.S. subtitle is Understanding the Stress Disease Connection. I like the Canadian subtitle because so much of the stress, the cost of hidden stress, because so much of the stress that people undergo, they're not aware of. In other words, the people who are automatic pleasers, who are caregivers to others, all of us have great difficulty being ourselves, and we all tend to identify with the world's expectations of us rather than with our true selves. These are risk factors, and these are hidden stresses because we're not aware of them. We, we don't see them as stress. We just see them as part of our natural existence, and yet it, they take a toll. And so the solution and the prevention, therefore, is to, as I say in our last chapter, which is called the seven A's of healing, you have to be aware of how things are for you. You have to pay attention to yourself, awareness, attention, anger, you have to deal with in a healthy way. You have to allow yourself to feel the anger and to decide how to express it. You have to have a sense of autonomy. You, you have to be an independent self in relationship to others. And you have to be attached to people. You have to be connected with others. But it's not a question of subjugating or subordinating yourself for the sake of relationship. It's a question of, as an independent person, you come into a relationship with others. Affirmation, the, the importance of recognizing the, one's own creativity and expressing it. All these things are essential and they have a huge positive impact on our physiological health. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, we are running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious, maybe as a final note, how did you become interested in, in this whole issue of connection? Well, the thing about medical practice is that it's, it's intensely stressful. And one of the reasons why doctors don't recognize this stuff is because they don't recognize themselves. In other words, you train the medical school and afterwards to subordinate yourself for the role that you're going to play. That's immensely stressful to medical students and to physicians. On top of that, you get the world's adulation, admiration, and financially, you get rewarded. And you tend not to pay attention to yourself. And I, I personally suffered long-term depression, low grade, and I had low back pains, and my family wasn't having such a good time either. And so I needed to start paying attention to my own stresses, and as I did, I really began to be aware of my patient's stresses. Well, it certainly was a very fascinating uh, book, uh, When the Body Says No, and I certainly hope everyone will go out there and uh, take a look at it and uh, take some of this advice to their own heart. Well, thank you. Uh, the book actually is a major bestseller in Canada and has been published besides the U.S. in seven or eight other countries and many of them in foreign translations. So I'm hoping people pay attention to it. So is there any final words then for people uh, then to pay attention to their, their own emotional health then? To you, I would encourage people to check out my website, www.whenthebodysaysno.com. The first chapter is online, as are articles and other interviews, both video and audio, which people can check out if they're interested. Okay, well, very good. Well, uh, Dr. Uh, Matei, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks and a uh, very fascinating discussion. Thank you. My pleasure. You were just listening to Dr. Gabor Matei discussing the connection between stress and disease as described in his new book, When the Body Says No, Understanding the Stress-Disease Connection. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out who popularized the decimal point. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why you can feel the bass drum? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why, when you're watching a parade, you can actually feel the sound of the bass drum? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Some, like those given off during an explosion, are powerful enough to shatter glass. A bass drum can't do that, but its sound waves are more intense and carry more energy than your everyday sound wave. Because the bass drum is a big, hollow instrument with a large vibrating surface that can move a lot of air, it gives off stronger sound waves than, say, a flute. Let's climb on top of this bass drum and get a closer look. First, look what happens as the drummer struts the drum. See, the drum head vibrates inward, then outward. This action both pulls and pushes the air next to the drum, crowding billions of air molecules up against their neighbors, which in turn crowd into the molecules next to them, and so on. Here it is again in slow-mo. The inward bending of the drum head pulls the air molecules inward, thinning them out. This is called rarefaction. Then the outward bending of the drum head forces them closer together. This is called condensation. Put those two actions together, and we've got a complete sound wave. Let's surf it. Now hold on. Our wave's about to crash into the crowd. Now a big booming sound wave hits their bodies. I'll bet these parade watchers are picking up some serious vibes. How's that for an explanation drummed into you? Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Oh, Everyday Science Lady. I think that explains why I feel funny every time I listen to you. Ooh, yeah. And now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week with the Tokyo Kid. Ah, so welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. And now I have the answer to last week's question of the week. Who popularized uh, the decimal point? Well, it was popularized by uh, John Napier, a Scottish uh, mathematician. And that is why we use the decimal point. Yeah, greetings, this is the Governator again, and I'm here to destroy you. Yes, the Governator is here to destroy the pounds and cars of craziness, and we're gonna say hi, you know, don't mind. You wanna keep that? Yeah, let's just keep going, let's, uh, I don't know. This is on, you know, I'm just gonna keep babbling and babbling until I say something, you know, interesting. And the interesting is this week's question of the week. The question is, if you want to be stuck in song like the Anna Governator, the question will be, what do you need to be understanding? You eat a lot of bananas, but bananas contain what? They contain a lot of elements, and what is the element? That makes us strong in the bananas. Well, if you're Lani, you know the answer. You can email the cracks at allman.com. You're not gonna win anything, but you just might be like the governor. And that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rock. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>